0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen church, remain standing standing with me this morning in reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. First Baptist Church of Crosby. Hear the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, Maybe see
1: God, we are about impossible business this morning. With man, it is impossible, not just salvation, but the understanding and the right reckoning of your word. And so we're asking you to come and do the impossible. Speak to us through your word and allow us to hear your voice. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us hearts to trust in what you have said here. I pray, Father, this morning that for those who have not yet trusted in Christ and Him alone for their salvation, that they would see the hope that is found here, that their heart would swell and that they would believe. For those who are yours, I pray, Father, that our courage would grow, our confidence, our sense of assurance, and then our gratitude for all that you have done in Christ Jesus on our behalf. So, Father, we ask that you would come and do this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Go ahead and stand one more time. And I want you to know that I recognize that y'all have done about 10 squats (laughs) this morning. If the king of the universe were to walk into this place, you wouldn't doubt if he told you to stand and sit and stand and sit. We're in the presence of God. And so it's an honor to be able to stand and hear his word. We continue on verse by verse to it. The book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm just going to read to you this morning, verses 19, actually I'll begin 18, 18 down through the end of the chapter, verse 22. This is the holy and inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All God's people said, Amen. Maybe. be seated. So as we, we come here to the conclusion of chapter two, this, just this glorious text, what we find here is really the pinnacle of everything that Paul has been teaching. And you'll remember the way that this whole thing began with him reminding us that we were once alienated, completely strangers to the promises of God without hope and without God in the world. But then we come to the end here and he's painting for us some pictures of what it means to be the church. Remember last week we discovered that he says that we are citizens of a kingdom. He doesn't use that word kingdom. You you might understand it to be a city or a nation, but the concept clearly runs all throughout scripture. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, no longer strangers and aliens, but full and fellow citizens all with equal rights and equal responsibilities bound together as one in what Christ Jesus has done. The question we asked last week was, who is it that belongs to this kingdom? And as Paul has made clear, it's the saints, those who have been called out of the world. You remember that we read that text in Hebrews that said that you are now strangers and aliens in the world. You once were alienated from the kingdom of God. Now you find yourself feeling very much alienated from the world. Their customs, their practices, their jokes, the things they value, they don't mean much to you anymore. You feel out of place because your kingdom's not here. Your king is not here. He is in heaven. And so your heart is drawn there to the things that are unseen. And so we're no longer strangers and aliens to the kingdom of God, but we are strangers and exiles in this world. Because we've been set apart, not just called out of the world, but set apart under God. We're fellow citizens with the saints. The saints of every generation and of every nation. It's healthy for us to remember this from time to time. That the church didn't begin with us. I think Southern Baptists are bad about this. Our church history goes back to about the birth of Billy Graham and not much further. We do well to remember that we are joined together with saints for hundreds of years that came before us. That the church didn't begin with us and the church doesn't end with us. That we're part of something that God has been building for thousands of years and something that I believe he's going to be building for thousands of years in the future. This is helpful for us, not only in that it's going to keep us humble, keep us from thinking that somehow we have mastered this thing called church. You know, God's been trying to get it right for all these thousands of years. And then finally, First Baptist Church of Crosby came along. And now, now we've mastered it. We do well to study church history. To look at the shoulders of the great saints of old that we stand upon and look back without a sense of haughtiness that, yes, perhaps we know some things now that they didn't once understand. But, man, what a gift from God, the theology and the understanding of who he is that's been passed down to us. And so we do well to think about this thing, not just within the confines of Crosby, Texas, and not just within the confines of our own immediate timeline. This thing extends beyond us. But at the same time, I counterbalance that to make sure we didn't go into one ditch trying to avoid the other. That we recognize that he's not just talking about the universal church. He's not just talking about the invisible global church. He's talking about each local congregation as well. Gatherings just like this. That's why he says in verse 22, in him you also, you saints who are gathered there in Ephesus, You also, everything that can be said about the global church can be said about every right and true local congregation. So these promises are for us as well, and we ought to strive towards them and celebrate them together. Understanding that within a visible local congregation, there will be some who are not among the saints. As I said last week, not everyone who belongs to the church is actually of the church. So the citizens in this kingdom, they are the saints. And so I asked you some probing questions and I wonder if you took them serious last week. I asked you, do you feel at home among the saints? Are you much more comfortable amongst the world? I asked you, where does your loyalties lie? With your king who is seated at his father's right hand in heaven or with earthly princes and mostly with yourself? I asked you if you were beginning find yourself fearless and lacking anxiety in the world knowing who this king is or do you find yourself wrapped up in the day-to-day busyness frustrations of the world around you I pray that you found the answers to those questions to be encouraging to you if not I pray that you cried out to God and asked him to come and make this right in your own heart because once we get to that place it's a driver of worship I remind you that the Apostle Paul was writing from prison. And he's talking about some specific things that had to do with the Gentiles. But he also talks about the Jews. You remember he'll say, you who are far off and you who are near. Jews and Gentiles alike, they only could come into the kingdom in this very same way. And once in the kingdom, it's a thing to celebrate. As you think to Paul's words in the parallel passage, Colossians 1.13. The reality that God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. God did the work. He has transferred us. He has ransomed us. He has rescued us from a dominion and a kingdom of darkness. It wasn't just two equal kingdoms. Do I choose the kingdom of this world, or do I choose this invisible kingdom of heaven? It's a kingdom of darkness versus a kingdom of light. Apostle Peter also referred to it as calling us, calling us out of darkness. And into his marvelous light. And then you think about all the words that David spoke over us earlier. You're once not a people. You weren't even a people. It was the Jews and then the rest of y'all. But now you're a people. You're a chosen people. A royal people. A priestly people. Under the banner of King Jesus. Now, I know it's easy when you leave this place and go out into the world, the, the darkness that's all around us. It's easy to wonder well, what good is having Christ Jesus as our king. He allows us to be slaughtered and mocked. The world seems to have all the riches. I saw somebody post the dumbest question you can ever. I hope they're not watching the live stream. But it's the dumbest question you could ever ask in the question of questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? You're a good person. Scripture tells us much of the common grace of God is going to be poured out upon the non-believer. And they're going to wish they never received it. They will rue the day that they receive these gifts from God's hand when they stand before him as judge. So we do well to be reminded in the words of Abraham Kuyper that there is not one square inch in all the cosmos over which the risen and sovereign Christ does not cry, mine. It's all his. It is all his. So as we leave this place and go out into the world, we can sing. Those of you who have been here on Wednesday night, you know we're working on a new song and it is glorious. Shout on, pray on, we're gaining ground. We're gaining ground. Christ Jesus has said, it's like a mustard seed. You might not think it looks like much now, but it is growing. And it is expanding. And as the Great Commission and the Gospel of Jesus Christ actually does the thing I said it's going to do, you're going to be reminded more and more and more that I reign over all. So then we're free to go and enjoy the good things of this world. It's not just we do some spiritual churchy things and then we go out and it's the drudgery of day-to-day life. Beloved, when you go to the factory, you go out as citizens of the kingdom of God. And if your job is to punch holes in donuts, awesome job. If your job was to punch holes in donuts 10 hours a day, by golly, you do it to the glory of God and you know it matters. That's the picture of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. But Paul doesn't stop there. I feel like we're in an infomercial. Who's that? Jack Lane or somebody? But wait, there's more. He's not done. He's going to continue to paint these pictures because one picture isn't enough. It's a little bit. I, don't, I had in my mind the idea of a funeral, but it isn't a funeral because we're not dead. But in some ways, it's like a funeral, right? You show a slideshow at a funeral to, to give some impression of who the guy was and who the, who the lady was. You don't just put one picture up there of him at a Little League baseball game coaching his kids because that's not all that he is. You show a picture of him on his wedding day, or you show a picture of him as a little boy, or you show a picture of him on a walk on the beach. You you show, as much as possible, the full picture of who he is. And it seems as though that's what Paul is doing. He's trying to give us this expansive view of who we are. What does it mean to be the church? Because so many people have such a narrow and restricted and unbiblical view of what it means to be the church, and we see the destruction from it all around us. So he goes on. You remember that back in chapter 1, he said that we are the body of Christ. When we get to chapter 5, he's going to say that we're the bride of Christ. We've just talked about being members of the kingdom of Christ, citizens in the kingdom of Christ. Now today, we're going to read that he says that we're members of a household. Then he's going to say that we're stones in that house. Then the crescendo of the whole thing is that we are a temple of the living God. That's where this thing is headed. But I pray that you see the progression here with each new picture. You see a a, a progression in privilege and in intimacy. You see a progression with regards to responsibility. You see a progression with regards to our unity and and communion one with another. He's, He's advancing as he goes and ultimately ends with us as a temple house in which the living God dwells. A place where God can come and meet with his people. And we're reminded that the purpose of the church, the end of the church, the center of the church, it is God and not man. It was his idea. We didn't all just get together and say, let's do a little something, shall we? Church was his idea and he purchased it by the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. That he is the one, tonight we'll come back and talk about the fact, he is the one who is building it. Therefore, he owns it and he alone can define it. A lot of people gather and they call themselves the church. But if not meeting up to his definition of what the church is, not built in the way that he says, not on the foundation that he alone has laid, then you are not a church. So we do well to remember that every time we gather in this place, every time you think about what this place is, and when I say this place, I mean the place where the people gather. I mean, the the people that come together in this place, this family that he's building, we do well to remember that the goal of all of it is that man might dwell in holy communion with the living God. Not to sing songs, not to hear a speech, not to read some words on a page, not to do public outreach that God's people might dwell with him as he comes to dwell in them. So it's our core responsibility as we come here to always have that is the mindset. And if you have that as your mindset, how could you ever grow weary of it? How could you ever grow tired or exhausted? How could you ever pull away from it? Because it doesn't meet your expectations or your standards. So he says here in verse 19, the second half of verse 19, They were not only citizens in his kingdom, but they were members of the household of God. Now, the the root word there for household is oikos, and it can just be translated as house. The house. There's another word that is translated as family. as genos. It's ancestors. It's descendants. But I think he chose this word because it makes clear that it's not just biological members of his family. It's all those who have come in. They're members of your family by adoption, sometimes by extension. All those who have come to dwell in the security of your house—they are your household. They are your family. And this is not the first time, or rather, I should say, the last time that we'll see the apostle Paul making this clear analogy that the church of God is the family of God. First Timothy 3:15, we read: "I hope to come to you soon." But I am writing these things to you so that if I do delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. A pillar and a buttress of truth. So the church is not only members or citizens of the kingdom of God, they're members of the household of God. Now we've already touched on this to some degree as we talked about the whole concept of being predestined for adoption back in chapter one. We talked about it as well when we came just to the last verse, verse 18, where we talked about how in Christ and through the Spirit we have access to God, but not just access to God. Access to God as our Father. So we already have some understanding of this, but again, I don't think I have to push you to see the progression. It's it's one thing to be citizens in a kingdom, but something altogether different to be members of a family. But going back to verse 18, we know that the first privilege and the, the first way in which this intimacy is increased is with regards to access to God as our father. You could live in a kingdom for your whole life. You could labor away as a good citizen in a kingdom for the whole of your life and never once have access to the king. You would have representation if he's a good king. You would have representation. You would have protection. You would have provision but never access. But I remind you, when we were back in verse 18, we jumped forward to the book of Hebrews and we read these words, Hebrews four sixteen. let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We come not just into his presence, but we're able to come to his presence with confidence. As I was reading this, it reminded me of beautiful Queen Esther. You remember her relationship with King Asuerus and how she needed to go to him. She had a very urgent matter that she needed to bring to his attention, a request to be made. But do you remember what happened? She got dressed up as beautiful as possible, and then she stood outside the door, waiting, praying, and hoping that the king would take notice and tell her to draw near. That he would point his scepter, her direction, and let her know, you can come near, don't worry, my guards will not take your head off. For many people, I'm afraid that's the way they approach God. They hymn and they haul and they mumble and they pace outside His door. But that's not the case with us. That we all, all the saints, all the members of the household of God, we come boldly, confidently, without fear. First John four nineteen. Then skipping down to the last half eighteen. Excuse me. Then skipping down to the last half of nineteen says that there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. We know who we are in Christ Jesus. There's no punishment left with God for us. Discipline, yes. Correction, yes. That's what a loving father does. But he bids us to come. There's no punishment left there for us. And he concludes it by saying we love because he first loved us. He chose us. Your homework for the week is to go home and read the first half of Ezekiel 16. It's a beautiful picture there as the prophet talks. He he first represents God's people as a helpless baby, bloody with the umbilical cord, not even clipped yet, laying on the side of the road. Just completely helpless as God comes and He cares for her so tenderly. And then 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 He changes metaphors as the the child grows and becomes a woman and He he comes and He brings that woman to Himself. All the love and the grace and the, the gifts of mercy that He pours upon these helpless people. You love because I first loved you. Recognizing that we should be slaves. You see, the rest of Ezekiel 16 then goes on to confront the sins of Israel. The way that he dressed them up and he gave them fine jewels and they went out and sought other men with those things. So all of us know as sinners that we ought to hope for nothing more than being slaves in this kingdom of God. Slaves in the household of God. But he doesn't receive us as slaves, does he? Think about the prodigal son. What's that picture? As he comes and the father runs to him and receives him with open arms, he says, Father, I'm worthy of being nothing more than a slave. He says, Son, you are my son. Slaughter the fattened calf and bring the robe and put the ring upon his hand. We're throwing a party. That's the way that God receives us. And that we dishonor him when we continue to live like slaves. We dishonor our Father when we act as though we have to earn His love. I've, I've asked you before, how badly would it break your heart? If you were to come home, I'll use Ali as an example. If we were to come home on one Thursday afternoon and she is frantically cleaning the house, and we say, "Ali, this is so gracious and kind and thoughtful of you to clean the house. What caused you to do this? Well, I just want you to love me. I just don't want you to kick me out. your heart would break. We don't approach God as slaves, as men that are filled with fear. We come. And I've told this story often, but it bears repeating because we continually have new people coming into our church. And you might be wondering what this candy bowl is all about. I've told you before that I have this desire that the children, and it's happening, that the children in this church would, not because there's something special about me, but I'm the guy that's talking to them about God all the time. They would see me as a man who loves them and cares for them and knows them. And we see this bearing fruit as kids come busting into my office without knocking. And their moms come running behind them and say, no, 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 you got to knock, you got to knock. I mean, yeah, that's good manners or whatever. But my heart swells every time it happens. They don't care if I'm in there praying. They don't care if I'm in there studying. They don't care if I'm in there in a serious meeting. They want to come into that room because they know I care for them. They know I've got nothing but good things for them. And that helps. It helps in a couple of ways. Not just because there are going to be times when they need to be able to hear my voice. But my voice is boring to them. Or my voice is scary to them. Or the things that I have to say are not easy to hear. So part of it is, yeah, about building that. But again, I want them to see God in this way. I want them to see that they have a God who they may call Father who is never too busy for them. Some of you may have been annoyed with me at times or maybe insulted at times when maybe we'll be standing here after one of the services, mostly on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night. We'll be standing here talking about something very seriously and then some three-year-old walks up wanting a dum-dum and you don't exist anymore. I've been down and picked them up. It's not that what you and I have to talk about isn't important. It's that you know I love you. I pray. I want to express to these children this is the way it is with your Father in heaven. He is never too busy. There's nothing more important. You come to him impetuously, persistently, over and over and over again, and he smiles every time. He delights in it when we come to him like this. You were strangers, you were aliens. Now you are not only citizens, but you are children. you're children. Your sons and daughters of God. What a thing. I mean, let me just read, you, I don't know, I'm tongue-tied. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See what this sonship cost you. See what you deserve versus the privileges that this brings. And then as God sends his spirit and it causes you within your heart to cry out, Abba, Father, as you find yourself when you scrape your knee or when you you're in a moment of turmoil or trial, calling out to him instead of to the men and women and people around you, that God is your father and you trust him to know what is best. See the privilege that comes with this. And I can only draw your attention to a couple. But I, I do pray that you will spend some time this week meditating and praying and rejoicing in all the privileges that are ours as sons and daughters. But one of them, in addition to access, is that God, as your Father, He knows what you need and He delights in giving it to you. Now, this week especially, as we talk about God as Father, it is healthy for us to be reminded that these are metaphors, but that the reality isn't defined by the metaphor. We stood in this place and we did this marriage ceremony yesterday and consistently I was reminding the couple and I was reminding the people that they are meant to be a picture of Christ and the bride, but I don't look to Christ and the church and say, okay, you are as Samuel, Daniel and Samantha are. I look to Daniel and Samantha and say, you must be as Christ and his church are, do you see? So just because you had a crummy father, Or just because you have your own regrets as father, he failed or you failed to meet up to the substance. He is not somehow limited or dragged down by the picture, by the metaphor. But we're reminded that our father in heaven knows all that we need. Jesus speaking there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 8, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Before you ask him, do you see how this frees us up? He knows what you need, not just before you ask him. He knows what you need before you know. And sometimes even if you don't know. Think about with your own children. How much have you done to sustain and keep your children alive? And they will never know. They'll never have an awareness. So you see how this freezes up then to just live to his glory. To pursue the things of the kingdom of God. I'm not always having to wonder, oh gosh, I didn't pray for food today. Is food going to show up? And it's not as though God is in heaven and he's forgotten what you need. You're not some hamster that a kid bought, put in a corner of his room and forgot to clean the cage. He's not looking to you and saying, I'm building a church. I'm building a kingdom. Oh, no, R.D. needs food. He knows what you need before you ask him. And that's why from this point down through this chapter six, he goes on to talk about our ability to store up treasures in heaven, to be generous with regards to the kingdom of God, to be absent any sense of anxiety that we're going to die one second sooner. Now, this doesn't mean you live forever. This doesn't mean you don't starve to death. This means you don't starve to death one second sooner than the moment in which God has decreed you will die. But he goes on to say, look, look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air. Do you see how God cares for them? Those are anxious creatures. And how much more precious are you to your father than these? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat? What will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles, that's the non-believers, they seek after all these things. But your heavenly father knows that you need them. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You have a father who knows what you need and he delights to give it to you. You see, a king, a king always acts based based on responsibility and duties. Citizens, what do citizens talk about? My rights. These are my rights. That's what you must deal as citizens in a nation or in a city or in a kingdom. And the king, he responds in order to keep you loyal to him. His motivations are always External. He's always worried about an uprising or a coup of some sort. That's never the case with a father. Kings are driven by responsibilities and rights and duties. And fathers are driven by love. They delight in caring for their children, anticipating their children's needs before they even know they need it. That's the picture of a father. Scripture says that he not only counts the hairs on your head, but that he catches your tears in a bottle. We can go to him trusting that he knows and he cares. I'll have people that will come to me sometimes and they'll say, I'm so, so sorry to bother you with something so minor as this. No meaningless moments. No meaningless tears. No meaningless sorrows. Your father knows and he cares. Likewise just as his responsibilities by us are radically changed our responsibilities by him again what's it about within a kingdom within a nation it's about upholding your responsibility there was a time when honor and duty actually meant something and i do long for those days when one of the greatest things that you could say about a man was that he was honorable that he did what was right and upheld his duty but it's about much more than this right if god is our father then it's also in love that we obey and we uphold all that He has called us to be. You see, it's not that when God becomes our Father, somehow our responsibilities before Him diminish. If anything, they heighten. I remind you that when we get to chapter 4 and we switch from the indicatives to the imperatives, from the stuff that's true to the stuff that we ought to do, we get to chapter 4 and we read this, If therefore... Excuse me, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit that is in the bond of peace. He's saying because of all that God has done, you should be eager to work this thing out. You should be eager to maintain this unity that he's built within the church. Eagerness and eagerness ties to desires of the heart. And of the will, I've got a passion to live this thing out in a way that honors my father. Not because he will destroy you. Remember, there's no fear. Not because he'll cast you out of the house. Fathers don't cast their children out. But because you know that you represent him in a much greater way. What does Jesus say? Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father who is in heaven. Your relationship to the law of God completely changes. You see, I'm afraid there's some people that continue to recite this mantra, we're under grace, not law, and therefore they don't know what to do with the law. Like essentially the Old Testament, I guess, doesn't mean much. The Pentateuch, what do you even do with this? Is this just a story about how God was preparing people for Christ? Well, listen, the law of God came to reveal His perfect holiness. And in revealing that perfect holiness, it showed us our depravity. It drives men to their helplessness. It leads them to cry out for Christ Jesus. This law I cannot do. I need a champion. I need a savior. I need someone else who can pay my penalty and fulfill all righteousness. Yes, it leads you there. But then are we done with the law? No, it shows the heart that loves God. What loving God looks like practically. How does that law, how does that love show itself? Well, it shows itself in the law. People will so often say, you know, I'm just one of those guys. I just believe you just got to love God and love your neighbor. People that say that more often than not, if you drill down, you figure out they're saying that so that they can break God's law. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you obey my commandments because my commandments are not burdensome because they reveal to you who I am and what love looks like. Not to earn my love, not to keep favor in my house. Because you love nothing more than when somebody comes up to you and says, you look just like your father. This only works if you love your father. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants. Here's another privilege. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you everything that is necessary for us to live lives of holiness and righteousness everything that is necessary for us to be confident in who we are in Christ Jesus everything that is necessary for us to be the church and shine like a light in the world he says I received that from my father and I've told it to you if you were a slave I would just say go and you would go do you see the gracious gift in this and that God has showed us the plans of the father He's shown us the way that duty and responsibility and obedience to the law is not contrary to our happiness. He's revealed something of what God is doing with regards to the building of his kingdom. And at the same time, he's shown us the end of the story. What's the end of the story? What's the purpose in him predestining us for adoption? It's that we would be joint heirs. Fellow heirs with Christ Jesus so that when the day comes that the consummation of the kingdom arrives. No longer longer does darkness have a place in this world. No more tears, no more sorrow, nothing but perfect communion with God. That in that day we will reign with him. He says, I've revealed this to you because it's true. Because you're not a slave, but you're a friend. And then surely you see the way this affects not just our relationship with the father, but our unity one with another. Surely you recognize how the bond in a household, the bond in a family is massively greater than that amongst a bunch of citizens. A bunch of countrymen, a nation. Why do we gather together as a nation? It's mutual interest. It's mutual interest and concern and what can you do for me and what can I do for you and how can we come together to defend something. But a proper family, it loves not on the basis of what you can do for each other. A proper family, it loves not on what you have to offer or even how you behave. We we are bonded together. We are united together. We have this communion together by a thing that the rest of the world can't understand. It's not, what can you do for me? It's that there's this invisible spiritual bond of love that has just happened. An inexplicable unity that makes you look up. I, I, I am baffled. I laugh out loud. I guffaw if you allow me to use that word, when I hear about some of you people that are friends. How did that happen? It's no explanation other than this. No explanation other than what he's done here. And ultimately, it's not found, though, in our bond to one another. It's found in our bond to our Father. Have you ever seen a family tree? Surely you have. It's from the Father. There the family comes. I want you to think about Annie and Abby and Allie. What makes them sisters? When Amanda and I decided that um, we were hoping, praying for a second child, we didn't put Annie to sleep, take a rib out of her body, and then form her sisters. They came from us. They have a, a common lineage. Such it is with the church. That our bond can't just be with each other. Though Any bond that we enjoy with each other, it must be rooted and grounded in our bond to the Father. We are brothers because we are family in Him. Do you see it? And do you see the difference? Because there's a lot of people that gather together under the banner of the church and they love each other. They enjoy each other. They celebrate. They fellowship. They communion. But if they're not grounded to God, they're not the church. And eventually you will find that the power and the strength of those bonds will ultimately be fractured. You just got to find the right place. Eventually there will be enough stress, enough offense, enough of not getting my own way. That the whole thing comes crumbling apart. That the only way the family is the family of God. Is if we are rooted and grounded in him that's why he says in John 1 12, to all who did receive him that is Christ to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God this family comes together supernaturally not through natural generation but through the birth of God the work of his spirit now, there's going to be, just as I said earlier, I said last week, excuse me, there's going to be people that live amongst the citizens of the kingdom, and they look like the citizens, they talk like the citizens, they eat the same food, they get the same jokes, but they are aliens. They're not citizens. There will be people who look every bit as much like they belong to the family of God, but they're not. The only way you belong to this family is not just loving the people, but is being born of God. According to the will of God, in union to Christ, and by the power of His Spirit, that you're not just a hanger-on. And listen, we welcome house guests here. As long as you're not a problem, you stay as long as you want. We will we will minister to you. That's one of the things I say when people come. They say, "Hey, I want to join this church." I say, "You recognize, we will continue to minister to you as a house guest for as long as you want. Your house burns down, we will be there. You need somebody to pray for you, we're it." You want to worship with us? Welcome. All the resources of First Baptist Church of Crosby are at your disposal. You want to become a part of the family? That's something altogether different. That's why we guard the front door the way that we do because this is the most exclusive family in the world. If God will let you into his kingdom, if God will welcome you into his family, we welcome you into our family. That's the picture. Got to make sure, as as best as we are, able. I can't see a man's heart. But that's what this process is about. That you understand what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, a member of the household, and that you're expressing that that's where I find my membership. That's where I find my citizenry. It is in Him. It's in what Christ Jesus has done. And, And some people take offense at this, I know. Some people are so used to this idea that, look, I walked down an aisle, I said, I love Jesus, just let me in. But beloved, I will remind you that we are beyond a big word in today's day and age is inclusivity. Inclusivity. Let everybody in. Everybody loves everybody. Just be inclusive. You are not inclusive with the things that you love. You may be very inclusive with regards to a country, with regards to a nation, with regards to a city, with regards to a place like this. How about your house? You keep the door wide open and let anybody wants to come in, come in? No, because you love the people in the house and you love the master of the house. And so you are most exclusive with the things you most love. God loves his church. We're called to love this church. And so again, it's not about the depth of your theology it's not about you being able to recite the books of the Bible or match up with us on every every little thing but as much as we're able we must we must make sure that you are children of the Father and then we welcome you with open arms and here's the beauty of this thing number well let me back up number one I can't keep you out of the family I'm not the gatekeeper to the global the universal family but beyond this once you're in there are no special and unspecial people. There are no important and unimportant people. We're all equal members of the household of God. And this gets so lost on so many churches. You've, you've seen churches that just destroy themselves over what? Trying to appease the important people and neglect the unimportant people. But God has warned us. Think about what he said through James. James 2, one. My brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It is a sin to show partiality because God doesn't show partiality. There is no pastor. There is no priest. There is no deacon. There is no family in the church that has greater access to God than the new child that comes in at the very beginning or the homeless man that walks in the back. We are all equal members with equal shares in the household of God. We must treat each other in that way. And I think that we do a magnificent job. I know of very few churches that do as good a job as we do of treating everyone on equal ground. Now, I'll tell you, that can be hard for some people that want to be important. If I want to be an important person in the household of God and I'm told there are no important people in the household of God, that's troublesome to me. But this will beat the pride right out of you. We are all equal members, equally important to God, equal access to God. And again, I pray that you see the intimacy of this particular union. It's citizens. We can separate, right? I I don't like it in here anymore. I can just bolt. I can go to another country. I can apply for citizenship there. But family, again, remember now, the metaphor doesn't define the reality. The reality defines the metaphor. Family is forever. And you don't get to pick your family. God has worked in magnificent ways to bring us together in ways I wouldn't have thought of. Look, I didn't go through the phone book and call each one of you and say, hey, would you mind coming and joining this family? I think you really got something to offer. But God has built this family. God is building His family. And family lasts forever. Even if estranged. Even if separated, even if in the middle of a fight, family is forever. And so that changes the way that we fight, doesn't it? Look, when when a man and I first got married, I didn't know that we had this talk, but it's just been true. We don't say the word divorce. Oops, We don't say the word divorce. We don't throw it around when we get into a fight. We don't hang it over each other's head as 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 a threat of some sort. She's stuck with me, and I've told you before, we started dating when she was about 14 and I was 15. I got her before she knew she could do better, and now she's stuck. (laughs) But it changes the way we fight. I don't throw Molotov cocktails around my own house because I don't have anywhere else to go. She's my family. The way that I deal with my kids it is so tender and so... I, I pray that they sense this, that it's, it's tender and loving. I want them to win. I don't mean win as in get their way. I mean, I want them to win as in do right. I want them to repent. I want them to see God. I want them to win. I don't want to destroy them. That that's the picture of a household and that should be the picture of this house. You don't get a do-over. We are the family of God. And so the way that we deal with one another... The way that we talk about one another, I pray. I don't want to keep talking about my own marriage. I I pray that I can say this and none of you are going to flinch. You will not hear me talk badly about my wife. She's not perfect. I'm not perfect. But I'm not going to run her down to other people. So within this family, what does this look like? Your name is safe in my mouth and my name is safe in your mouth. You will defend me if necessary. Not because I'm the pastor, because I'm a brother. That's my family you're talking about. There would be no room for sowing of discord or, or grumbling or griping about each other. We would be anxious to defend this thing that God has given us and we'd be tender in the way that we, yes, we confront sins. Look, because I've got to live with my wife and because I've got to live with these girls for the rest of my life, I do confront stuff. I don't just turn a blind eye and let them run their life off of a cliff. So we confront sin, but I do it. I want you to win. And so it's prayerful. When I know that there's an issue going on in the life of my family, I've got to approach my wife about something. I pray, I say, God, show me the right moment. Give me the right spirit. Give her the ears to hear it. You You see the difference between you've made me mad and let me let you know about it. That's not what family does. That's a picture of what God's doing. That's why, again, going to Colossians, we find so many parallels in the book of Colossians. Colossians 3:12. Put on, then, as chosen ones of God, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Knowing what it took to bring us into this family and knowing the forgiveness that is extended to us day after day after day, how very merciful should we be with one another? How quick to overlook an offense must we be with one another? This is the picture. This is the picture of the household, the family that God is building. As with most most things, There are many people that, they like the idea of a family, they just don't like so much being in one. Because nobody can hurt you like family. People people often laugh. They'll come to my office and say, hey, I'm gonna say this, but don't take it personal. I got the skin of a rhino, my friend. Developed and by nature, God has given me the ability to, most of what you say is probably gonna roll off my shoulders. But my wife, she can put me in a puddle in about 10 seconds with about 10 words. No one can hurt you like family. No one can wound you like family. And so many people decide the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Why why would I go through all this? Either what happens is they come into one family and it's not their ideal of the family. And so they bounce and go try to find another family. Or they decide it's just not worth it. I got enough hurt in my life. I have enough hardship in my life. I don't need to be a part of all this stuff that God's doing. And so they never joined themselves to a family. They might show up for certain events, but not in a meaningful way. You realize it's possible to show up in this place every single Sunday morning and never actually give yourself over to the family. And it's when you give yourself over to them and you let them in on your life. Can I just make a plea right now? Will you plead people, please, as much as is possible. Some of you already do this fantastically. Will you please start having other people over to your house? This is an area that I struggle in. I struggle magnificently in this. I will so often view my house as a place of respite for me and for my girls. But you let somebody into your home and you go to somebody else's home and you eat together and you share life together. You confess your sin. I want more than anything for us to be a place where people of God confess sin one to another. We're going to each other and saying, I have sinned in this way and I need your help. Or when we sin publicly and the whole church already knows it, that you would come on a Wednesday or a Sunday night and say, Pastor, can I just say to the people, I know I've sinned, you know I've sinned, pray for me. That's big stuff, man. Don't know of a church that does it. But isn't that what a family does? Isn't that a picture of the household of God? So I'm asking you to bear... Break down these barriers and make friendships you wouldn't have otherwise made and have people into your home and do life with these people knowing that you're going to get hurt. But knowing that if you see what the end of the rainbow is, what is it? A temple of God. It's not worth it if I'm just being built into a building or just an ordinary family. But if it's the family of God and the kingdom of God in a place where God by His Spirit dwells, no amount of suffering and no amount of pain and no amount of heartache is going to be counted as too much. It's worth it. Because I don't just want God to be my Father. I want Him to live in me. I want Him to live in us. I want to be a people that by the time we hit this door, we are so bound together by this invisible spiritual thing. We are ready to receive the Spirit of God with holy hands and holy hearts and no offense one to another. That's the household that he's building, something that transcends this world, something that transcends our own time. Again, I say over and over and over again, the things we do today will benefit the generations to come. I pray to God that in a hundred years, First Baptist Church of Crosby is gathering and they don't know our names, they don't know our struggles, they don't know what we've done, but they stand together more united then than we are today because of the hard stuff we did today. Because we refuse to be a people that were grounded in anything else other than our relationship to God. And they're then modeling to the rest of the world what family looks like. We, better than anybody else, we should be a model to the world this is what a family looks like. This is how a family treats one another. Okay. You're going to be so proud of me. I don't write a transcript any longer. I just have little notes, like, like reminders right here that help, help remind me. But I number them at the bottom so I'll know what page I'm, you know, what page I'm on. And it's like, I have like two words on a whole page. So don't get blown away by the number of pages. I'm on page 44 of 86. And so I told Chuck yesterday, I knew I was going to have more than I could preach in one sermon. I didn't know it was going to be this much more. So we're going to preach the rest of this sermon tonight. I'd encourage you to come back tonight. But beloved, I pray that you see this picture God's painting, and I pray that it changes your mindset about who you are. pray that it drives your worship and your sense of love and admiration and gratitude to God for what he's done in you. And I pray that it radically transforms the way we relate one to another. And I pray as a result of that, we would be a people who glorifies God in his presence, perhaps like we never have. Father God, we praise you. And we thank you for this beautiful text that you've given us God you're doing something glorious and, and you are doing it here I, I say often we are not an ordinary people and what you're doing here is not ordinary and we praise you for that and we pray Father, that you'll help us to never take for granted or never do anything to diminish this work we pray that you'd help us to submit with all that we have and all that we are to this family To go all in for the sake of what you're building here with the the complete hope that because the building is not up to us, because you're not beholden to us to figure something out, that you will complete this work. And that someday we will stand together ourselves in glory, just marveling at your goodness. Father, we pray that you would come and help us to submit these things in our heart now. In Jesus' name we pray.